Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Film Scene in Iowa City. Very excited uh, about tonight's topic, Cuba, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Uh, this island nation, only 90 miles south of Florida, has, as we know, a rich and intriguing history. But many Americans living today have little direct knowledge of Cuba, apart from its music, and the icy relations and trade embargo that have uh, been such a part of our, our last half century or so. As we know, about a year ago, President Obama and Cuban President Castro announced a new era of openness between our two nations, and some significant changes are beginning to be seen. The U.S. embargo remains in effect, and there are still travel restrictions for U.S. citizens, but I and other recent visitors can attest that Cubans are anxious to welcome Americans and seem to feel hopeful that this new era will offer them a greater level of prosperity and, and uh, a greater engagement with the outer world. In this World Canvas, we'll explore Cuba's history and culture through its architecture and urbanism. We'll learn about the long and complex U.S.-Cuba relationship through the lens of public health and discuss new possibilities for educational exchange and business development on the island. For this first segment, we have a very special guest. Uh, he is Cuban architect, urban planner, and author, Julio Cesar Perez Hernandez. So nice to Thank have you, you here, Julio. Thank you. So you are the author of two books that are very well-known, absolutely beautiful books, and I think basically out of print, but if you have the chance to come across them, both Inside Cuba and Inside Havana are, are eye-opening books about some of the, the gorgeous architecture, the, some of the um, uh, history of the land and the development of the island. And um, Julio is, is also uh, here because he has created and nurtured something that is unique and I think very important to the future for uh, the development of Cuba. Uh, that's the master plan for 21st century Havana, and we'll be uh, talking about that in a minute. It's a comprehensive plan for future development that could respect the culture, the tradition, the idiosyncrasies of the island, and yet allow for sort of the new level of prosperity and more employment for the people of Cuba. So uh, I guess we'll just start by uh, asking you to give us a, sort of a very brief setting of Cuba and, and Cuba's development history if we start at the period when Europeans entered the island. Um, Cuba became important for Spain just because of its uh, strategic location. That's a very important concept because mm, there was no gold and there was no silver, and the Spaniards soon understood that. So um, for a certain while the country was neglected until they understood that the, the harbor of Havana, which has been the historic engine of, for the city, was the, um, the place where all the, the ships would come together either to be repaired or to wait for the rest of the ships to bring the worth from Mexico and Peru and the other colonized territories to be brought to Spain in convoy-like trips to defend themselves from pirates. So um, this is um, the initial prosperity of the uh, city of Havana derives from this, from this condition, the geography. So um, here, hence, geography is important. Um, after that, um, Cuba became the, the jewel of the Spanish crown for many reasons. And, and in the 18th century, the, the biggest shipyards uh, in America were in Havana in the arsenal of Havana. And then in the 18th century also, um, national identity was forged based on a steady um, economic growth that led to prosperity in the cities. 
But by then, all the cities were already laid out and built. So and basically, uh, I would love to say that Cuba and Cuba's development is the result, as America is, of the Renaissance. From the historical point of view, what allows us to be now here is it was Columbus' trip. And Columbus was a Renaissance man, and he was surrounded by Renaissance men. And that, that's the way it happened. And um, it also leads to, uh, to another concept, which is that uh, Cuban cities and towns are very European. Um, here's where you find the, the Roman print. Because um, the Romans, uh, as we know, the, the, the Roman Empire was spread along across Europe. And so they founded cities in Spain. So in, in, in the end, and um, by the time the Spaniards came to America, they had all this influence. Mixed with a little bit of Moorish influence. Remember that the Moors were in Spain for eight centuries. And they left also a wonderful print, especially in Andalusia, the south of Spain. So when, uh, when you look at the city of Havana, what is it about the urban plan or the, the, uh, the uh, design of plazas, courtyards, and so on that, that is particularly Spanish? Are you saying that the European um, ideal of the time was transferred to it, Cuba? In a way, the, there was a process. This is sometimes ignored that there was um, a back-and-forth process because Spain was also arriving at the Renaissance. And the wealth that they extracted from America allowed them to make progress, immediate progress. And there's a writer who said that at some point the, the streets of Seville could be paved with gold that was brought from America. So um, in a way, when, when the Spaniards arrived in, in, in America, they found two conditions. The, the islands had nothing that could be named as cities or um, any urban condition. But uh, on the contrary, when they came to Mexico, they found really um, urban advancements and progress. They found aqueducts, they found um, roads and temples and canals. So they understood that th there was a civilization there. So there is this um, dual condition of the islands that were completely undeveloped. And then Mexico and Peru, who had really cities, as, as they are understood, that, that um, set the, the, the pace for, for the Spanish colonization in America, um, which was, by the way, a very cruel process, as we all know. Um, so cities in Cuba um, and towns in Cuba reflect um, in many ways, not only the Spanish print and the Spanish culture, but also a more variegated European one. Because there were Italians in Cuba from the beginning, for example, all the fortresses except for one were built by the Antonelli family. And so there were Irish people in Havana. There were people from all over. Remember, pirates came, and some, some of them settled down there. So from the very beginning, it was a lot of diversity. And what you see, and this is probably what you are referring to, is that this um, condition of the public space is based on squares, which is also a legacy of the Spanish urbanism in America, the, both the grid and the squares. And the grid and the squares define 
a concept which is order. And order was inherited from the Romans. So uh, here you find all the, the historic uh, thread uh, all of a sudden revealed. That obviously leads to some, um, um, it leads us to some uh, cultural, societal uh, norms um, that revolve around public spaces, around squares, around um, meeting together outside, under lodges, and yeah, so on. That's good, um, but mm, you, are, <laughs> you are failing to mention something, which is climate. Yeah. So yeah. we mentioned geography. Now, mm -hmm. climate is part of geography. So... And you need to understand that working in the tropics is completely different than working in, in such weather like this. So um, in all regards, I mean, for me as an architect, I've I designed buildings in, in these north territories, like Virginia, for example. And I'm designing a house now in Miami. So it's a completely different condition. And it's a completely different concept. So... When you go to Havana and you, and you find what she mentioned, the porches that shelter people from the, from the harsh weather and from the sun and from the rain, and you find the, the squares also reflect the idiosyncrasy of people. From the very beginning, people used to live outdoors. You have to, uh, to try to find the shade. So if you visit the oldest part of the city, you find this medieval-like grid that um, tells you, how wise these Spanish were when they laid out the streets in such a way that the facades cast the shadow at least on half of it every, every hour of the day. So, which allows you to take some shelter from the sun and also defines a very urban condition, a very strong edge that um, on the one hand shelters you and on the other hand defines the scale which is a very intimate one, by the way, very, very human scale. Mm -hmm. So I just want to take a minute to tell you how I first heard about Julio's work. Uh, two years ago, he presented a lecture here at the University of Iowa in international programs about the master plan for Havana, which he'll speak about here in a moment. And um, I had the opportunity to sit in on that lecture and learned about a workshop, a design charrette that he and his... Um, um, architect colleagues from Cuba have put on since 2007, was that the first yeah. one? Mm -hmm. uh, which is open to people from all over the world who have an interest in uh, things ranging from historic preservation to new development, um, uh, business opportunities, um, um, all kinds of things. Just to be part of history. Just to be part of history, right. And so anyway, I, I was able to go this last March and see some of this work um, firsthand. So I'd like to have uh, Julio spend just a minute talking about how, uh, as a member of this experience, I was able to see uh, how the different sections of the city developed in, uh, in their various decades and what it implied for social interaction and movement and then we can also perhaps talk about what you think would be an ideal development um, process once things move forward um, well the, these are Many several yes, topics yes. so uh, yes. I try to address them one by one if Good. you don't mind Good. No, no. so um, Havana is ready for a sensitive change uh, not any change, but a sensitive one. Otherwise, we will lose it. So this is the, where the big challenge is. But it's, it's also where the uh, big opportunity lies. 
And I understood that like 15 years ago when I drafted a master plan for 21st century Havana. Even way before people would think that Obama and Castro would get to an agreement December 17, 2014. So um, in a way I followed my dream after I was reflecting about the problems of the city. And um, this plan is an independent plan. It's a work of love. I, I charge nothing for it. And, uh, but I understood that it was my duty as a, as a Cuban because um, otherwise mm, there wouldn't be any contingency plan to address future development. So right now you're seeing everybody's going to Cuba, everybody's exploring opportunities of business there. So there needs to be a plan that guides development because um, we all know how aggressive um, capitalism is. And I'm not talking about politics at all. I'm not saying that socialist, socialist is a failure, especially economically speaking. Uh, so this was one of the reasons why I started to work on the master plan, and because I think that the, the city needs to move on. When you go to Havana, what you see is basically what anybody could see in 1958. So it's like um, a in time place. And it's nice because you see all these old cars and you see uh, a wide range of styles, of architectural styles. Um, it's good to see from, you know, vernacular to um, late Baroque and neoclassical and even good modern architecture. So there's a tradition. Um, but most important, if you allow me to say this, um, the master plan is aimed at both preserving the heritage, but creating also, as you said, new economic opportunities. And when I mentioned create, uh, preserving the heritage, I, I would say number one is not about buildings. It's about the urban fabric, which is unique in Cuba. It's, it's unique in Havana. It's the only one that is left in Hispanic America. So hence the value. And then um, buildings are also important, but you know, a city, it's a city not because of one or two or a hundred buildings, but because of its urban condition, its human spirit, its lively streets, of course, its traditions, its music, its rhythm, the, the rhythm of light and shadows, the color, the color in Havana is very special, the color of the light all through the year. So um, what... What we architects can do is, is dreaming about places and trying to preserve the ones that, where we see value. Um, there's an important lesson in history here. Um, most of us choose historic places for vacations. We go to Rome, we go to Paris, we go to London, we go to Madrid, we go to Seville, we go to places where you find there's something unique. And this is the so-called the spirit of the place, which is what Lawrence Durrell, the writer, called the determinant of any culture. And also it's called in Latin, genius loci. So this is, this is it's like beauty. You have it or you don't. And Havana has a lot of beauty. Havana is a city of magic and poetry. So you are also invited to attend the charrette. Uh, the next one is going to be in March. Um, the charrette is an intense, week-long um, workshop where everybody is welcome. In fact, 
the charrette, I devised the charrette to test the idea of the master plan with the people, not only locals, but foreigners. So you are invited to, to have an opinion, to have a say on the ideas that we have developed on the master plan. And, and if they're valuable, we're going to listen to them, we're going to process them, we're going to evaluate them, or we're going maybe to incorporate them. And then this is also, uh, mm, I would say, a democratic way of testing a plan by submitting them to the citizens in such a way that they have the opportunity to participate and being consulted. And this is also a major difference about the plan that I drafted. For the first time in history, number one, Havana has a comprehensive plan that is not derived from any government's detection. It's derived from the city's needs. So um, this is one important statement, I think. And the other one is that it's not influenced by, by any trend, or, uh, but following the city's tradition, people's idiosyncrasy, and the history. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, if, if you were to talk about one or two things uh, within that plan that you think are really important needs for, for the people, uh, perhaps transportation, perhaps uh, access to the beautiful waterfront and uh, usable spaces and so on, are, are there a couple of elements of the master plan? There are or ten. Yes, <laughs> something you could the, the plan mention. Is, thank you, because mm -hmm. it allows me to speak that the plan is based on ten, ten key concepts. And some of them she mentioned, and... and um, but the, the very basic one, when I start a lecture, I always refer to um, this mm, long-term holistic vision for the city. Uh, that I think that is one of the mm, important values uh, or virtues of the plan. And then the, there are others like waterfront redevelopment. Uh, it has a great potential. Um, and then infrastructure upgrading. Infrastructure needs to be addressed from this evening, um, because it's dated and because mm, it doesn't work. And within that concept of infrastructure upgrading, we have devised also um, a new public transportation plan for the city. Mm -hmm. And also um, the increase of public space and the increase of green spaces mm -hmm. is also another concept. And because um, in the end, one of the goals is to maintain and to keep and preserve also, together with the fabric and, and all that is tangible, the intangible values of the culture and the sense of identity and the social diversity and cultural integration. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're not hoping to create some beautiful little gated communities? No, not no. at all. No. In no. fact, that's not going to happen. No. <laughs> At least while I can stop it. Hey, yeah, yeah. So we've been talking about Havana. What do you see uh, happening in some of the other larger cities around, uh, around Cuba? Will Havana have to come first in terms of... Havana has to come first because um, as everything in life, we need a model to follow. And I do believe, I personally do believe that... Um, Havana's rehabilitation can serve as a model for the rest of the cities in the country. Um, right now, there's a lot going on in Havana, and, and also in other historic cities like uh, Santiago de Cuba and Cienfuegos, um, meaning that, that Havana is the capital, but we have to take care of, of other places in Cuba that are Maybe it's not important as the capital, but they are also important and, and they need to be taken care of. Um, one of the, of the good news for 
you and the audience is the creation of Heritage Havana. It's a new foundation that was, this was announced, officially announced on November 17th, 16th indeed in Havana, which is also Havana's anniversary. Uh, Heritage Havana is something very recent, very new. I, I think that none of you have heard of it. Um, it's a non-profit found entity, and um, um, we're moving on. The good news is that the first ship will arrive in a week time in Havana. Which is huge, of course, because of the It's bringing embargo. supplies for yeah. the restoration of yeah. buildings. Yeah. So we're not just talking. We're doing things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're being uh, pragmatic. We're being, you know, we're addressing things the way they should be, and we're moving on. Um, the other good news is that because of we do this charrette every year, we develop a copy to the Office of the Historian of the City of Havana. So it's good to be back in Havana and see that some of the ideas are being implemented. So right now, if you think of the master plan as a visionary pro project, and it is, mm -hmm. it is, but it's also being implemented already. Uh, so I'm telling you, it's going to happen in my lifetime. <laughs> well, I was wondering about that because, you know, I'm one of those people who, you know, you go visit some great castle someplace and you hear that it took, you know, 240 years to build this castle. I think, wow, people had to have a tremendous amount of patience and also faith that something would get done. Okay, so you're the king. But still, you know, it's not finished in your lifetime and that, that's different. You know, we, we like to put up a building in uh, six months here. And so... Does it bother you that there will be parts of this left undone, perhaps, um, no, at the end of your life? No. Um, I, I think that would be um, a great satisfaction, not because of, of my personal involvement with this, which is great, uh, but um, because of the city. You know, we have to do s things for our cities and for our citizens. Otherwise, our life is nothing. If you don't give, if you don't do things for others, what's your life about? So um, Cubans are that way. And not only that, we, we can contagiate Americans. Mm -hmm. And this is why Heritage Havana has been created by a person from New York. And this is a person who wants to give back because he, he understands and acknowledges that he has received so much after 40 trips to Havana. Mm -hmm. And it happens that mm, this person is um, the owner of Academic Arrangements Abroad, for which I was... Uh, uh, an exclusive lecturer for many years. So he knows of my work, and I've spoken to the groups that he has been bringing to Havana for many years. And there's an international advisory board working on this and making projects happen. So is this, is this uh, an effort to make sure that there are, there, there are more coordinated voices from many parts of um, development, you know, the business world, um, uh, people concerned with uh, social activities and so on, kind of like uh, when, when Venice was threatened that, um, I don't remember what it was called, but... Save but Venice. Save Venice. Yes, when an, an organization like that comes along to sort of say, we need to make sure we're here, we're paying attention to this. In fact, Heritage Havana's original name was Save Venice, Save Havana. Ah, and this guy calls me at 2 in the morning because he knows I'm working at that time. <laughs> and he said, uh, I know you're working, but I, just, I was just awakened by this idea, and I want you to be the first to be consulted about this. Uh, do you think I'm crazy? Do you think we should move on? And that's the way it happened. Mm -hmm. And um, it was started. And uh, all of a sudden, it chose that 
America and Cuba can work together and can make things happen together. <laughs> As it happened in the past, by the way, you, when you visit Havana, you will see the print of many um, construction companies, U.S. construction companies, architects McKimmy and White, Chus and Weaver, uh, and even Richard Neutra did a house in Havana mm -hmm. that you can still see. So it shows that, that most of all, above everything, we are humans. And we can work together and we can talk about common goals and common things. And this reminds me of how uh, Dalai Lama uh, started a, a lecture some years ago. He, he said that uh, he didn't know almost anybody in the audience. But in the end, we are all humans, and after a while, we can get to know each other easily. And this is based on human communications and goodwill. Mm -hmm. And this is exactly what our work is based upon. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, thank you so much for being here you. with us. Uh, uh, you've been listening to Julio Cesar Perez Hernandez. Uh, he's an architect and an urban planner and author, professor from uh, Cuba, uh, now living in the States, and very grateful to have you here with us. I hope you can stay with us for part two of this series on Cuba. Uh, we'll be hearing a very interesting, uh, having an interesting discussion about um, some history between the U.S. and Cuba that grows out of public health concerns. All World Campus programming is available on YouTube, iTunes, UITV, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. Uh, please come to these live shows if you can in the future. And uh, to learn more about film scene in Iowa City, go to icfilmscene.org. So I'm Joan Kerr, and for International Programs, thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. We're coming to you from Film Scene in downtown Iowa City. This is part two of our three-part series on Cuba, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. In the first portion of our program, we explored the architectural and urban landscape of Havana with Cuban professor Julio Cesar Perez Hernandez. And we'll turn now to what may be a little-known but significant public health relationship between the U.S. and Cuba, one that reveals both cooperation and confrontation between wary neighbors. My guest in this segment is Mariola Espinoza, an associate professor in the University of Iowa Department of History. Her areas of special interest are public health and medicine and empire and Caribbean history. So thank you, Mariola, for being here today. Thank you for having me. Oh, so appreciate it. I know that you've done a lot of research and written extensively on the history of disease, uh, medicine, public health in Latin America, and some of your recent work uh, focuses on the long and complex public health <laughs> relationship between Cuba and the U.S., um, I had a chance to hear you give a talk on this some time ago, and I think a lot of us maybe aren't even aware of this uh, relationship, but I realized that I had not really thought enough about the impact that disease and health issues, um, concerns about contagion and so on, the role that has played throughout history probably in the relationships between countries, not only within a nation when you're trying to look after your own population. So um, I think uh, your insight into this uh, Mm, historical look at, at medicine will be really enlightening for us. So give us a little background on, on the uh, earliest relationships that we know of uh, between the U.S. and Cuba. Sure. Um, so I, I am a historian, so I study the ways in which uh, U.S. and Cuban relations were affected by healthcare. And what I found out in my research 
uh, was that the relationship between the United States and Cuba goes back uh, centuries. And there has been exchange between Cuban physicians and American physicians within the same circles, going to universities in the United States, uh, publishing in the same types of journals as far back as the 1850s. And in my work, in my research, what I found was that um, one of the reasons, all of you have heard about the Spanish-American War, and I argue that one of the reasons in why the United States entered the war in Cuba is because there was the threat of yellow fever. And it turns out that yellow fever had been threatening the coastal cities of the United States uh, for the past uh, 100 years, and that in 1878, there was a great devastating epidemic of yellow fever in the United States that went up the Mississippi Valley from New Orleans all the way up to Illinois, uh, causing hundreds of thousands of dollars in losses, and that it was traced back to a case that came from Cuba. And since then, a preoccupation with Cuban as a source of yellow fever entered the minds of US sanitarians and, and public health officials. When the Spanish-American War broke out in 1895, it's really the Cuban War of Independence. Mm -hmm. The United States is worried about whether yellow fever again will break out in Cuba because people are at war, they're not taking care of sanitation in the city. And when it does, uh, in addition to other reasons, the United States decides that that would be one good reason to enter into war. And so the military government that is established by the United States in Cuba, the occupation government, focuses all its attention uh, that has to do with reestablishing, rebuilding the city and cleaning up surrounding yellow fever, which is not a killer of Cubans. It was the seventh killer. It was not the first or second. Mm. It was the seventh killer, mm. showing the priorities that were yellow fever in places like New Orleans, uh, the priority that was the threat that yellow fever could cause to trade and international trade in the region. So were there diplomatic overtures before, uh, before the actual entry into the war happened in order to, to sort of you know, see if they could work with the, the, um, the government of Cuba to stem the spread of yellow fever? The Spanish and the Cubans were at war. The priorities of the Cubans was independence. The priorities of the Spanish was quelling a rebellion. The Cubans and Spanish had fought a war before, between 1868 and 78. The Great Yellow Fever Epidemic in the United States was 1878, so mm. kind of marking mm -hmm. that. It was uh, uh, traced back to Cuban refugees. And the, uh, the beginning of a possible new epidemic in the 1890s, when the Cubans are fighting Spain again, was enough. Uh, the, the the Spanish were not going to spend money cleaning up Havana. They couldn't do it. They didn't have the money for it. The money was going to fight the Cubans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, getting to the, looking a little bit at the, the disease itself, um, Walter Reed plays into this picture. You, you gave us a little insight into that. Walter Reed would be the American hero. Carlos Finlay is the Cuban one. So it becomes <laughs> this national uh, story of, of men and heroes that then get to fight each other, not in person because they both die, but in <laughs> terms of uh, creating museums and naming buildings to see who really is the person who discovered uh, the mosquito vector. 
the, the studies about yellow fever and its origins. Yellow fever is a virus. It is transmitted by a specific kind of mosquito. And it's a tropical fever that really is not nice or pleasant to have. <laughs> um, anybody who saw it pretty quickly ran away from it, thereby causing that Mississippi epidemic, people fleeing along railroad lines and, and, and river traffic, uh, for example. And uh, it it's, uh, destroys your internal organs, and it makes you jaundiced to a certain point, which gives it its common name, yellow fever. Um, and when the United States occupation government starts cleaning up, they start cleaning up with the cutting-edge knowledge at the time, which was, um, this is a bacteria. If you clean up, you'll get rid of it. And it had worked to a certain degree, because cleaning up means getting rid of standing water, which breeds mosquitoes. So it had helped a little bit in other places. So it wasn't something that's outrageous to think about today. But um, it turned out that after doing all that in Havana, uh, the next yellow fever season came back and came back stronger. And so that's when Walter Reed gets commissioned to organize a study of yellow fever. Carlos Finlay is a Cuban physician who had been for decades studying the cause of the disease. And he had identified in the 1870s the mosquito that transmitted the disease. Um, but people didn't pay attention to him. His studies were thought to not be um, sound in terms of experimentals with controls. And so when Carlos Finley arrives to Cuba with uh, his commission, which includes Cuban physicians but American physicians, they start looking for the bacterial cause of the disease. And it's not working. And one of the uh, physicians in, in the group um, decides that they really need to listen to this Cuban guy, that they really should look into what he's saying, that there might be something to, to what he had proposed decades earlier. Mm -hmm. And so it turns out that well, Walter Reed doesn't care for this. <laughs> and he goes on a trip. He goes back to Washington, D.C. And while he's away, his colleagues decide, all right, it's our turn. We get to do what we want. In particular, one of them, uh, Jesse Lazier, goes and meets with Carlos Finlay, who gives him mosquitoes to work with. And in the process, uh, infects his colleague by submitting him to a mosquito bite, <laughs> and then reports back to Walter Reed in writing that he succeeded and that the Cuban was onto something. And Walter Reed writes back, completely outraged. How can you do this? I'm not even here. But like at the bottom of the letter, it says, get the mosquito, do it. Like underlined like three times. <laughs> and the answer is yes. And so he comes back to the island. Um, he unfortunately, uh, Jesse Lazier dies in the process of yellow fever. Walter, uh, Walter Reed grabs the, the lab notebook immediately like any scholar onto something good, writes it up for publication, <laughs> and designs a controlled experiment to actually prove to the world that indeed it is caused by mosquito, uh, this particular mosquito biting um, the, its victims. Mm -hmm. Wow, so, so history, as many people know it, gives Walter Reed 
the credit for having... Depends on where you are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, not in Cuba. No, no, no. No. Yeah. Well, I suppose these fights go on even now with, with discoveries, you know, yes. uh, new things that come along. Well, science builds upon other people's knowledge. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, but within Cuba, people recognize Carlos Finley as this person who really... Uh, help them get this under control. Absolutely. And you say that yellow fever really wasn't uh, uh, as dangerous for Cubans as it was for these outsiders who came in from the States or elsewhere. It, it wasn't, uh, they, didn't, they didn't have it as a cause of death. Uh, no, it was seventh in the uh, mortuary statistics of Havana. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't uh, dangerous for Cubans if you look at it as terms of a disease. It was dangerous for Cuban because it meant that if they did not control for yellow fever, they could get invaded again by the United States. Right, right. That's, yeah. that's what we wanted to get at here yeah. because um, uh, when the U.S. was uh, in Cuba, and I don't remember what it was called, but it was the early 1900s mm -hmm. when the U.S. was in a protectorate position or uh, Occupation. Occupation, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, protectorate, <laughs> occupation, right. Um, so in any case, when they were there, there were massive efforts, were there not, mm -hmm. to sort of help with um, sewage control and sanitation yeah. and so on. And so the, the U.S. occupation government cleans up Cuba, and after they figure out that it's the mosquito-borne disease, they really focus on fumigating, getting rid of standing water, isolating cases, screening ambulances, so putting screened windows and screened doors around ambulances. It's the tropics. There's no air conditioning, so getting around. Mm -hmm. um, but also, uh, there's other sanitary measures in the reconstruction of Havana and paving and sewering the city that get contracted during the first occupation, but don't occur until much later. Gosh. The, the first occupation ends in 1902, and mm. as part of that uh, contract, basically, is what we know as the Platt Amendment. So Orville Platt, a senator from Connecticut, proposes this amendment to the Cuban Constitution and to the U.S. Constitution that sets conditions for the freedom and liberty of Cuba. Um, that's why we have Guantanamo Bay today. Mm -hmm. Um, there's all kinds of other regulations, including the possibility of future interventions if there is need, uh, political disturbance. But also one of the clauses is a sanitation clause, that Cuba will remain clean and sanitary to protect the lives of people across the Gulf in the southern states. And that was in the Cuban Constitution, signed as conditions of independence in 1902. Mm -hmm. And so there has long, long, long been an awareness that, that this health issue could again bring the U.S. into much greater dominance over Cuba than Cuban leaders would, would like. Yes, yes. And this, if we were to jump ahead a few decades yeah. to the revolution uh, mm -hmm. with uh, Castro, um, you help us understand how this moves from medical history into a really political um, side of history. So we have this story from the past about two national heroes uh, competing for a Nobel Prize or competing for recognition as uh, the leading scientific uh, participants. But also we have this history where you have a dominant country dictating where the efforts at sanitation are going to go to, which are not the priority of Cubans. The priority, as soon as yellow fever gets eliminated on the island, 
turns to tuberculosis. So mm -hmm. yellow fever beds turn to tuberculosis beds, which is an international issue at the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the, the, in 1959, and the revolutionary government, the first years in particular, aim at, the, the rhetoric aims at equalizing and, and remedying the ills of a very unequal society in which the majority of people were living in poverty outside of the cities mostly without access to health care. So you have a new political movement that then uses public health and the health of Cubans as a way to, essentially as a way to build consensus and to help people not only be better and healthier, but also become part of the revolutionary government and the revolutionary ideal of the party. And then on top of that, because you have this relationship that's international, historical, you have a situation where if the Cuban government is providing health care to its citizens, it's not really equal in reality, but in rhetoric it is, to all its citizens equally, they can, in the international stage, when being accused of human rights abuses, say health is the first human right and we are providing it to our people as opposed to other people that are criticizing us, in particular the United States. To be clear, I'm not saying that that is the reality on the ground, but it provides rhetoric of international conversations and fights and conflicts that are about health care. Well, and it's interesting, too, because I think for many people in this room, probably, um, we have heard in this country that one of the, the great triumphs, really, of, of um, Cuba is that, that, you know, people do have access to health care, but also that many fine doctors are trained. There's a lot of medical, biomedical research being done there that we understand to be, uh, you know, very important and so yes. on. And this is all part of that picture. Hmm? It is very important, and they're doing great things in Cuba in terms of research, a scientific research, um, medical research as well. Um, but the other side of the coin is that, like in other parts of the world, it they're points of national pride. Right? Yeah, yeah. So they're points of, of showing off to a certain degree mm -hmm. uh, what countries are doing or not doing. Mm -hmm. Well, so we were talking with Julio Cesar in the last segment about some of the things that one might imagine will happen in the future. Uh, if you could just give us um, a point of view uh, <laughs> regarding, um, uh, you know, this era of politicians, is in the 80s, late 80s, uh -huh. they, they will one day be gone. Would you imagine that this health focus and access to health care, at least rhetorically and, and in some mm -hmm. level uh, in reality, do you think that will continue to be one of the uh, hallmarks of Cuba going forward? Is it so much a part of what Cubans expect uh, and believe their, their country has done for them that it will remain? I think so. I think it's one of the strongest points where the government of Cuba has been able to show in the last few decades that it has done something good. Mm -hmm. And we think of Cuba as uh, isolated and unchanging, and it's not. Mm -hmm. um, Cuba has been trading and, under, and has been, the Cuban government has created ties with other international uh, pharmaceutical organizations, uh, scientific organizations from other parts of the world. So really, this international mm -hmm. exchange of, of knowledge, which is not embargoed, 
but also uh, really proprietary scientific knowledge mm -hmm. is not new. Mm -hmm. um, now, there is change in Cuba, and this, this call by the President of the United States a year ago has given uh, to some people the perspective that things are moving really quickly, and they're not moving that quickly on the ground in Cuba, and correct me if I'm wrong, people in the audience who are familiar with it. Um, the people I've spoken to, everybody's really hopeful. It's about time that there's change. But everything is being very carefully calculated. This is not going to be an opening of doors. This is going to be looking into what has been done before with other international companies to see how the United States companies might, might, might fit in there. And also in, the term, in terms of the way people live in Cuba and their liberties, we still have power outages. We still have the same issues. So it's not, things haven't changed as quickly as we might feel here in the United States as mm -hmm. they're changing. Mm -hmm. Well, as we wrap up, um, we've been talking, of course, mostly about Cuba here, but uh, when you look at the larger world these days mm -hmm. and the way people travel and coming and going uh, all the time, um, and it's clearly we've seen some major epidemics and contagion and so on in the last few years. How do you think this will, mm, in the foreseeable future, affect international relations? I mean, do you see health and, and uh, disease as being really very, very big issues for a long time? I, th I, see, I think so. I think it, they, they've always been there, mm -hmm. um, and they always will be. Diseases don't have national borders. Mm -hmm. They travel with people. The only way to control them if they're getting out of hand are quarantines, and even then there's problems with that. Mm -hmm. um, in places we've seen the epidemics become militarized, and that becomes very mm -hmm. problematic, the militarization of medicine in recent epidemics. Um, and also, it's, I, I envision Cuba sending doctors to the rest of the world as it has since the 1960s. Mm -hmm. um, it sent a bunch of doctors to, uh, to Africa to deal with Ebola epidemics this past year, and it continues to train physicians from what are called lesser developed countries to make sure that there is some sort of basic preventive health care that says, look what a great job Cuba is doing in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. well. Mm. well, uh, you've been listening to Mariela, Mariola Espinoza, and uh, she's a professor here in the University of Iowa's Department of History. A real pleasure to have you here you. to talk with us. Thank you so much. And I hope you can stay with us uh, for the third uh, portion of this program, which will be uh, coming to in just a moment. Uh, a different look at Cuba, some first-time impressions from uh, recent visitors. Uh, so this is uh, World Canvas for international programs. You are welcome to come to these programs live at Film Scene in Iowa City. Otherwise, you can check out the recorded programs at the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. I'm Joan Kerr. Thank you for being here, and we'll see you next time. Hello and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr and we're coming to you from Film Scene in downtown Iowa City and we're happy to have you join us for part three in this series focusing on Cuba, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. In earlier segments, we've explored Havana's history through its architecture and urban plan and we've learned about a complicated public health legacy and its current manifestations. In this third part of our program, we'll learn about some of the academic ex exchange opportunities in Cuba 
UI students can take advantage of and will get a sense of how trade, investment, and business collaboration between the U.S. and Cuba could provide attractive markets for Iowans. Uh, joining me on stage here are Nadia Dubiani, University of Iowa undergraduate student and study abroad diversity ambassador. Welcome, Nadia. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And next to her is Autumn Tolman, associate director for the University of Iowa study abroad office. Thanks, Thanks for being for here. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. And at the far end here we have Dimi Dureska, who is a lecturer and the director of the University of Iowa Institute for International Business in the Tippie College of Business. Thanks for being here, Dimi. Thank you, Joan. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So um, these folks are here because they have had, uh, in I think all cases, very recent experiences in Cuba. uh, And I think in all cases, they they were new experiences. And they come at it from sort of different... Uh, place. I'd like to start with Nadia because she, as we just mentioned, has been uh, a University of Iowa student here. I think you're in your very last semester, are you not? Graduating okay. next week. So. Great. So congratulations on that. <laughs> <laughs> and you went to Cuba this Did. summer for a study abroad program. And I, I've asked her to tell us a little bit about what that program was and sure. your experience. Sure. So I was in Cuba for a month this past summer. It was a university study abroad consortium program. Um, and I was there studying uh, governments of Latin America, Latin, Ameri- Latin American economies, and the history and cultures of Cuba. So I got a very intensive um, academic experience there. We had class from 9 to 5 every day, and I learned a, a lot and covered a lot of, mm. of subjects. Yeah. Was the class in English? It was taught in no, English? No, it was all, it it was was all, all in Spanish. Spanish. Ah, yeah. very good, very good. Yeah. So are you a Spanish major? Minor. Minor. Yeah. Okay, good. I've been speaking Spanish since I was young. So. Uh-huh, very good. good well, so why did you decide to go to Cuba? Why was that your choice? Well, I've, um, like I said, I've been studying Spanish for a long time. Um, Latin America and the Caribbean always interested me um, for many different reasons. And when I learned that I had the option of going to Cuba, it seemed like a very rare opportunity for a unique experience, and I, I didn't even really have to think about it. I knew that I, I had to try to go. Mm-hmm. So. Well, you also had the opportunity to go uh, with a scholarship from Study Abroad Office uh, mm-hmm. as the diversity ambassador. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you could tell us what the diversity ambassadorship is all about. Sure. Um, so with the diversity ambassador award, I was able to go to Cuba. So I was very thankful for that. Um, it's basically designed to give students from underrepresented groups an opportunity to participate in Study Abroad like other students mm-hmm. can. Mm-hmm. So it's for students from racial or ethnic minorities, um, maybe they're first-generation college students, um, students from the LGBTQ community. Um, It's designed to give people, you know, more access to these opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk a little bit about your sort of diversity experience here in the United States as opposed to what you saw when you got to Cuba. Sure. So I come from a rather diverse background. Some might say my father immigrated to the U.S. from Morocco in the late 80s. Um, my mother is an Iowan um, of mostly Dutch descent, I think. <laughs> um, and then, um, so my my family is very diverse and spread out around the world. Um, I have most of my family back in Morocco still. Some of us are in the States, some of us are in France, some of us are in Spain. Mm-hmm. We're all spread out, and some of us are Muslim, some of us are Jewish, some of us are Christian, so hmm. I have a very diverse family, and we celebrate all the holidays, and <laughs> we, we eat all the different kinds of food, and I can make Moroccan food, I can make 
Mexican mm -hmm. food. I can mm -hmm. make, you know, it's, it's, so it's a unique background, and I really cherish that, mm -hmm. um, that upbringing. Yeah. Well, uh, Nadia wrote a piece that was published in our journal, International Accents, where she reflected on, on uh, the fact that here in the States, people want to know uh, what she is or <laughs> where she's from or whatever because they detect something in her appearance that they're, they're trying to associate with the culture or whatnot. Sure. And so you said that when you went to Cuba, you had a, a different sense of that. Yeah, there's always sort of an element of mystery when I encounter people for the first time. Sometimes, you know, they, they want to say, what are you? <laughs> and, like, <laughs> and while that's kind of a you know, crude question to ask, I, I appreciate the, the curiosity. And, and I never really know what people think when they look at me. And I think that's kind of a, a unique and interesting experience, especially when you're traveling to other countries. And one of the things that really surprised me a lot about Cuba was the diversity there. It's an extremely diverse country, ethnically, culturally, um, historically. There's, there's so many different um, influences in, in Cuban cultures. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was, I didn't really know what to expect, you know, what people would think of me there. Um, but I, I really felt at home there. I felt, you know, accepted by everyone. And, and um, my African heritage was actually a really great place to bond with people on. Um, the woman that I was uh, living with, she was, um, you know, kind of shy towards us at first. And I sat down and I had some coffee with her and we got to talking. And, and you know, there, it's amazing the things that you can connect with people on that maybe you wouldn't expect mm -hmm. going in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure it was an advantage, too, that you spoke Spanish because uh, with with uh, the Cubans who are not working in sort of tourist industry, mm -hmm. uh, you had a chance to really yeah. connect better. So Yeah, my professors uh, didn't speak any English, so I got yeah. all the Spanish practice I, I yeah. could have asked for. No, that's <laughs> great. Wow. Well, I think we'll just slide on down to Autumn Tallman. I, I'd love to have you uh, tell us a little bit about the recent trip you took to Cuba. And you were there mm -hmm. not just because you wanted to see Cuba, but that's also right. to consider whether or not there would be an opportunity to create a University of Iowa study abroad right. program in Cuba. So tell us what you were doing. Sure. Uh, well, I did want to see Cuba, so uh, that is <laughs> always one of the great benefits of uh, being in this line of work and helping the University of Iowa to establish international education programs in a variety of locations around the world. Um, I went down with Dimi, and we were traveling um, for about a week, primarily in Havana, to look at the possibility of um, kind of how to establish a program for business students. This might be MBA or undergraduate business students um, or other students interested in exploring the possibility of um, enhanced business relationships between the United States and Cuba as the embargo lifts and various amendments open up uh, new possibilities for collaboration. So um, Dimi had a really brilliant idea that he brought to international programs, and then we worked with him to think through what would that look like, who would be participating, and then we traveled down to uh, essentially explore the logistics. How yeah. doable would it be? Mm -hmm. um, and I think really for all of the, the factors that we typically look at when we're assessing the doability of a program abroad, um, Cuba just really offers tremendous opportunities. It's, it's unique, it's close, um, and just in terms of academic possibilities, it's a real treasure trove. I mean, we could imagine uh, programming for students in the arts, humanities, business, um, health, 
um, you name it, there are really tremendous uh, possibilities. So while we were traveling um, in Cienfuegos, south of where we were, there was actually an international education conference taking mm -hmm. place. And this was really the first of its kind that brought together international educators from the United States. I believe several hundred attended. Um, and um, Cuban academics and educational institutions to talk about what will this look like. Um, and at this time, there's really tremendous interest. I know quite a few colleagues nationally who um, are in the planning stages for programming in a variety of disciplines, mm -hmm. um, not just in the business area that we were exploring. So were you talking to people, uh, to Cuban representatives at the institutions you might be connected with, or? Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, we, so because we're looking at helping um, DME develop a program related to business, mm -hmm. um, the basic model is to have University of Iowa students looking at small to mid-sized businesses um, in Iowa, so Iowa-based businesses, and then to take that as a model to then look at if these businesses were to establish some kind of ties with Cuba for exporting or some other purpose, uh, what would that look like? Mm -hmm. How possible would it be? Mm -hmm. um, what opportunities would they find? What barriers might there be? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that will, how doable it will be in each case, I think mm -hmm. might vary, but yeah. the learning for students in any business sector will be tremendous, yeah. I think. So, yeah. so we ended up meeting with um, the Chamber of Commerce, we met with various um, business sectors. Um, I think for me, a few takeaways from that, um, it, it seemed to be um, quite interesting to the people that we talked with, the idea of connecting um, Iowa agricultural sector mm -hmm. with Cuban business interests. So that seemed to be something mm -hmm. that really um, sparked interest in, in the Cubans, um, professionals, and just you know, people we met in passing yeah, yeah. when we talked about what we were doing there. Hmm. Um, there also seemed to be significant interest in developing um, possibly collaboration around uh, sustainable energy, wind energy, solar energy. That was another area that seemed to spark a lot of interest. Um, and I think also, there may be questions that Cubans in the health sector have about um, certainly they're, they're quite advanced and, mm -hmm. and they have even, say, certain medications that are already being marketed internationally, mm -hmm. but there isn't an end to the U.S. market. So I imagine as this evolves on the Cuban end, there may be questions about how doable is that? Would we ever be able to market um, a medication or some other medical product or service to the U.S.? How would we even begin to navigate all of the um, hoops to jump through mm -hmm. to make something like that happen in the U.S.? So I would imagine there might even be opportunities down the road for consultants um, yeah. for the Cuban government as yeah. they try to answer questions that hmm. they have about how to collaborate with various sectors in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow, great. Well, well, Demi, let's continue this with you. So you would be uh, the professor of this course that, mm -hmm. that I know is under development. Uh, what do you hope to accomplish with this? Well, let me tell you a little bit what the Institute for International Business does. Then I will segment into mm -hmm. the discussions on what I hope to accomplish. The, the Institute for International Business is part of the John Papa John Entrepreneurial Center, and we work with Iowa companies that want to go global. We help them build strategy 
and we'll help them do market research and also do risk analysis before they go into a new foreign market. And we do that using students as consultants. It's really providing experiential learning uh, opportunities to the students so they can put their education into practice. And uh, uh, in Cuba, really, we have two type of, uh, of projects that we are thinking uh, of implementing using the students. We, we want to work with Iowa companies that want to look into Cuba. When we went over there, we wanted to find out what sectors that uh, could be potential opportunities for Iowa companies. And as Adam was mentioning, agriculture and mainly grain and, 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 uh, and, and meat like pork, etc. They also very strong. They're promoting right now renewable energy, as Autumn was mentioning. And they are also talking about healthcare technology. They have the qualified healthcare people, the doctors, the, 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 the scientists, etc., but they still don't have the, the top-notch technology that we have here in the United States. And they, they, they did their research. The folks that we met with, they know what Iowa can provide. So they said, these are the things that we are thinking about that we think Iowa can, can, can help Cuba with. And again, they want that relationship to be both ways. They also are thinking of how can we get some of our uh, products, some of our uh, 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 goods to Iowa as well. And as yeah. Autumn was mentioning, you know, the, the, the medications, because Cuba also mm -hmm. has a very good pharmaceutical industry mm -hmm. uh, that they use in other parts of Latin America and the Caribbean. So, mm -hmm. and, uh, so the, the students will work with these Iowa companies first that want to go into Cuba, and then they'll go there, do research for those companies, find out the opportunities, find out the needs of the Cuban people, and when they come back to the United States, to Iowa, they'll write uh, uh, strategy recommendations or, or ways that those companies can penetrate the Cuban market. So that's one aspect of the project. The second aspect is what I call social entrepreneurship. And one thing that Autumn and I, we notice, lots of small uh, businesses owned by Cubans mm -hmm. That it's been, it's happening. I remember before I went there, when I talked to uh, Julio Cesar, he told me, look around, go to those restaurants, talk to those, uh, 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 um, uh, what we call the, the Cuban version of uh, Airbnb, uh, yeah, you know, bed and yeah. breakfast. Right, so talk right. to them and, and, and see what they're doing. And we did. Yeah. We, 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 we had uh, dinner at some of those restaurants and we visited some of those uh, 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 and the Cuban version, we saw them in, in Vinales, mm -hmm. and, and they were really interesting. And they are Cuban versions, mom-and-pop stores. And remember, this is a country that had knows nothing about capitalism, about how to do privately-owned business. So they, they, they're trying, they're doing their best, and, and they're doing it really good. And we're thinking of using some of our students to go there, stay with them, kind of work with them on how to 
develop uh, a plan for success for their business, develop marketing plans, develop ways to differentiate themselves and, and, and things of that sort. And those students, the ones that have more Spanish skills like, uh, yeah. like her, will stay with family, with Cuban families, and they'll work with them on their businesses and make them some recommendations. And, and without kind of like uh, imposing any of that, work with them, learn from them, and also share with them things that can help them improve their business models. Mm -hmm. So really, it's twofold uh, projects. And we're thinking of a, of a three weeks program that uh, Autumn and I, we're still developing it, and where the students will spend the entire time, some uh, period of it in Havana, others in Vinales, and other parts of Cuba, and, and, and explore and, and, and mingle with the Cuban cultures, understanding how things are done, and, and not being too uh, 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 U.S. centric, but with an open mind, so they can also learn from the Cuban people. Right. Well, it sounds so exciting. Now, am I correct in assuming that students who, who would go into this program, they might need to have, or they would be best off having some Spanish skills, at least a, a moderate? Yeah, level I mean, of it, they don't have to have a lot of Spanish, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but those who know more Spanish will we'll work more. on the social entrepreneurship parts, yeah. and those who don't know too much Spanish, they'll do the market research for the sure, Iowa companies, sure. talking with uh, Cuban folks at the Chamber of Commerce mm -hmm. uh, or at university professors. And most of these people, they speak English. They can sure. conduct a business meeting in English. Yeah. Uh, so what Iowa companies that, that you have personally spoken with, if you don't mind giving some names or at least a, well, a general uh, area? Uh, uh, I, I can tell you, I'm not going to mention a name, but I can tell you, we have a, a prominent Iowa food chain company that is interested in looking at Cuba, the, the mm. tourism industry. Mm. And, uh, and, and, and I've, I've been in touch with a renewable energy company in Des Moines that is thinking about uh, 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 mm. Cuba. And, and, and I have some uh, uh, Iowa City uh, uh, consultants uh, that I plan to talk to that will advise me on some of the healthcare technology companies mm. that I can talk to to uh, mm -hmm. uh, get them interested in, in, into this project. Yeah, yeah, because I, th I think one of the challenges with Cuba as it moves forward will be if there is a transition from the kind of economy <coughs> they have now into one that is more of a market well, economy and, and that, you know, salaries right. are earned differently. And, mm -hmm. That's right, because the goal is, what we're trying to do is to set the stage for the Iowa companies so they can have the first movers advantage. I know that there are already companies visiting mm -hmm. Cuba right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I talked to the, 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 the prominent Cuban economist in Havana, he said, you know, Pizza Hut already been here. Uh, um, <laughs> Marriott already come to talk to me about uh, coming to Cuba. He said, uh, Google where he Caterpillar was, and I said, well, then I need to talk to John Deere then, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he said, yeah, talk to John Deere, tell them to come in. And so yeah. so he's, he told me several other companies that just, the U.S., when we were leaving Cuba, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce was coming. Oh, yeah. When yeah. we were leaving. Mm -hmm. So we, we missed them by a day. Yeah. So U.S. Chamber of Commerce delegation from Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. was going to Cuba. Sure. And, and if you don't know it already, the, uh, the IEDA, the Iowa Economic Development Authority, is taking a delegation to Cuba in February. Uh, mm. uh, it's, it's, they're going to go there on, 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 a, on what we call, uh, they, they have these missions, uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, trips uh, overseas. And those, these are business folks that they are taking into uh, to Cuba. So Cuba really sparks lots of interest. Mm. And, and, 
And I think it will be good for Iowa companies to get themselves ready when things open up, mm -hmm. then they can just take advantage of, mm -hmm. of, of the opportunities. Mm -hmm. So are, are there any, are there any uh, challenges, Autumn? I know one of your roles in study abroad is to uh, oversee safety concerns with mm -hmm. students who travel internationally and so on. Uh, as I understand it, Cuba is actually quite quite a safe, it felt safe to me when I was mm -hmm. there, and, and I, I know others who had the same impression. Um, how do you assess some of those things? Do you just look at the State Department travel advisories? That's, that's certainly one pillar resource that we use for any location worldwide. We're looking at um, information from the State Department, from the Overseas Security Advisory Council. Uh, we benchmark with um, other academic institutions from the U.S. that might be operating in a particular location where we're going. We benchmark with other sectors. So, for example, um, for Cuba, we can benchmark with other, you know, energy, um, hotels, aviation, those mm -hmm. kinds mm -hmm. of um, industries that may also operate in a place. Yeah. For Cuba, it's somewhat unique because everything is opening up. We don't necessarily have U.S. peers who we can reach out to at this stage. Um, we do have Canadian peers, so I think that's been a really good resource for me is to hear um, what, you know, say a former ambassador from Canada to Cuba has to say about um, current conditions. And also just recognizing that I think to some degree the American mindset around Cuba now, it, it, it's almost... I found as I was talking to people about my upcoming travels there or after I came back, it was almost as if I'd gone to some place frozen in time yeah. and you know, yeah, as if yeah. I were going off to walk on the moon where no one had walked <laughs> before. And um, so I imagine our students will be perhaps surprised by that if that's kind of the narrative kicking around in your head before you go. You get there and you realize, oh, tourism is not in fact a new thing here. Uh, there are some... <laughs> <laughs> quite well-established Spanish hotel, hotel chains mm -hmm. um, full of Canadians and Europeans mm -hmm. who might decide once Americans start showing up that maybe this isn't um, maybe the new thing for them. It can be our new thing, and mm -hmm. they'll move on to something else perhaps. Um, mm -hmm. But w So we're looking at government um, resources, both our own and um, countries like Canada that have more experience there. Yeah. Uh, we're looking at, um, we have a private security partner we work with, so when we build up an itinerary, we'll have them comment on um, just what our plans are, where we're going, um, transportation. Mm -hmm. And then we also are consulting with just regional analysts in government who can share more information um, about issues. And you're right. I mean, I think in, looking regionally, um, say petty theft crime in Cuba, mm -hmm. it's fairly low. Mm -hmm. So in terms of just day-to-day -day safety of our students in Cuba, um, that's not a huge concern. We would want our students to take the same precautions we would want them to take here um, when they're in Cuba. Um, they, there may be some things related to privacy, just kind of issues of privacy that we may prepare students for before they go. Um, there are for example, some recommendations from government, and I think this is primarily geared towards businesses that may mm -hmm. work there about you know, protecting um, trade information mm -hmm. um, and, and maybe not making the assumption that perhaps erroneously we do in any place that the Internet is somehow a private mm -hmm. place. Mm -hmm. It isn't or, or that you shouldn't go there assuming that you'll be able to get internet everywhere. Right, right, that hasn't right, yet happened, right, right. but uh, it'll, come. That's, it'll come. It's, it's changing. Yeah, um, yeah. We received some guidelines before we went, basically saying that in the major hotels, 
don't expect to have good access, expect to wait in line at a business center to be able to get you know, a few minutes online. Mm -hmm. uh, we were there and found that not to be true. We were able to purchase internet cards. Okay. And talking with people who had been a few months before us who had been there, and then people who went around the time that we did, that seemed to be fairly consistent, that mm -hmm. that's communications is an area that's opening up, and that seems to be um, less of a difference for mm -hmm. travelers to Cuba now. Mm. And I would anticipate that there are other kind of infrastructure issues that mm -hmm. we may need to handle a little, a little differently than we might in some other places. For example, a U.S. phone is not going to work there, but it's possible to, if you plan ahead, um, have a good communication plan mm -hmm. in place. Mm -hmm. So I don't really see any significant barrier to doing this other than perhaps this is going to be kind of a hot new possibility mm -hmm. for many U.S. institutions. So capacity, mm -hmm. that yes. may be the issue, yeah. that um, there will be some who are able to make good connections and plans, as I believe we're doing, and then past a certain point, there just may be limits in terms of the infrastructure available to support mm -hmm. um, U.S. educational initiatives. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, so Nadia, would you go back? I would absolutely go back. Um, I actually really wanted to stay there longer than a month, but unfortunately that was not possible. Um, because I'm graduating, I don't have the same study abroad opportunity any longer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But if for some reason down the road I had the opportunity to go, I would jump at it immediately. Yeah. I miss it all the time. Oh, that's <laughs> nice. That's, that's a nice way to end our, our program, and I want to thank you all, Dimi Dureska, Autumn Tallman, and Nadia Dubiani. Thank you so much thank for you. sharing your, your thoughts with us. And uh, that's the final part of our program for this afternoon. You've been listening to World Canvas, and we're coming to you from Film Scene in downtown Iowa City. Thank you all very much for being here. I hope you all get to go to Cuba. And... Um, uh, I hope you can join us here when we come back to this uh, location on January 26th. That's our next program. And uh, in the meantime, have very nice holidays, and we'll see you next time. Good night.